Thank you for tuning into our podcast, The Top Three, which is brought to you by the History Department of the U.S. Naval Academy located in Annapolis, Maryland. In this show, we'll discuss and debate some of the key turning points, trends, and major figures of world history. We do so with the understanding that history is often a matter of controversy. Our goal is to explore the varied landscapes and seascapes of the past, in the hope of shedding some light on how the present world came to be. In the studio today are our three co-hosts, Lieutenant Mac Anderson, Associate Professor Thomas Burgess, and Lieutenant Commander Andy Cox. All of us are instructors and lifelong students of history. In this first episode of a two-part series of the top three, we will try and agree on the top three worst betrayals in modern world history. To define things a bit, we're focusing only on the modern period, approximately 1750 to today. Each co-host will offer two contenders for the list, and then after everyone has had their say, we'll narrow the list down from six to three. Hopefully, Tom and Mac brought their A-game today. To start us off, Tom's going to present us with a familiar name who made a career out of turning his coat. Uh, thanks, Andy. Yeah, so my first entry, I, I have Napoleon's foreign minister, Talleyrand, who was one of the most cunning political operators France ever produced. Yet time and again, he demonstrated his willingness to shift allegiances and betray both people and principles. Born into an, an illustrious French noble family, the young Talleyrand suffered from a limp and so could not become an arm, army officer like his father. Instead, he pursued a career in the service of the Catholic Church. Educated at the Sorbonne, at the age of 25, he was anointed a priest and played an instrumental role in authoring a major defense of the church's inalienable right to own vast properties, both in France and the rest of Europe. In 1788, he was anointed a bishop and the following year attended the National Assembly in Paris, which would soon instigate a revolution against the old order, an order that Talleyrand had pledged to defend. Instead, Talleyrand supported the revolutionaries by, for example, calling for the confiscation of Catholic Church properties. He also supported a new law that made French clergy answerable to the state and not to the church. For this and other betrayals, the Pope excommunicated him. And yet because of his noble birth and prior church service, many revolutionaries still doubted his loyalties. Fleeing France just prior to the September 1792 massacres, he went into exile first to England and then to New York City, where he became a close friend of Aaron Burr. People may recall Burr as the man who was almost elected our president and later went on to kill Alexander Hamilton in a duel. Talleyrand returned to France in 1796 and the following year was appointed foreign minister. He cultivated a personal alliance with Napoleon, who at the time was only a general, on one of his lightning campaigns through Italy. Betraying his government, Talleyrand was instrumental in Napoleon's coup of 1799. Napoleon rewarded him by retaining him as foreign minister. Though outwardly loyal, Talleyrand opposed Napoleon's foreign policies, believing France had already achieved its natural territorial limits. He negotiated peace with the, Aust with the Austrians and with Britain, as well, and for such service he was given the astronomical salary of 500,000 francs a year, as well as made the Prince of Benevento a region in southern Italy. Yet Talleyrand opposed all further military adventures, even when the French army went on to crush the armies of Austria, Prussia, and Russia. He parlayed his influence into personal wealth. German nobles paid a massive bribe so as to retain their lands, following French redrawings of the map of Central Europe. Hostile powers paid him princely sums to reveal France's military secrets. Napoleon publicly humiliated Talleyrand, saying he could, quote, break him like a glass, but it's not worth the trouble. 
He also famously called him to his face, shit in silk stockings. Talleyrand got his revenge a few years later when he advised the Austrians and Russians on how to defeat Napoleon and even helped orchestrate Napoleon's ouster in 1814. Until today, opinions are mixed. Some regard Talleyrand as an astute and far-sighted man who could see that while Napoleon could make war, he couldn't make peace, and that his emperor would eventually bring France to ruin. And so he, he remained loyal to France even as he betrayed Napoleon, and that he proved his loyalty time and again as a skillful diplomat. Others, however, note that Talleyrand in turn betrayed the Catholic Church, the Bourbon monarchy, the revolutionaries, Napoleon, and then the Bourbons again in 1830. And he did it always out of self-interest and not in service to any higher principle. This is the man, after all, who famously said, treason is a matter of dates. And even if one argues that Talleyrand ends up often on the right side of history, Throughout his career, he demonstrated an uncanny knack for treachery. I'm amazed at this man's story. Um, He is the cat with more than nine lives. I can't think of anyone who lived through the entirety of the revolution, like Talleyrand, who comes from a noble family and is continually put in places of trust and power and influence like this. Well, the best part of this, Thomas, is that I learned a new insult today. I think I'll be incorporating shit in silk stockings pretty regularly into my uh, into my vocabulary now. I really enjoyed this story. Um, I can't believe a man so highly placed at the beginning of the revolution, in the church of all places, manages to float his way through most of the revolution and retain places of high power and standing through here. Um He really did seem to make a career out of betrayal. Did any of the instances stand out to you more than the others? Uh, Well, his lack of religious conviction, definitely. I mean, some reports suggest that he was actually an atheist, although at the end of his life, he did reconcile with the Catholic Church, or at least tried to. Um, But he was not only excommunicated, but he was, you know, defrocked. Um, When it comes to Napoleon, Napoleon understood that he was treacherous, but thought of him as brilliant as well and wanted him on his side as a skillful diplomat and thought he could sort of control his foreign minister somehow, keep him in his camp, not realizing that eventually Talleyrand would actually help to orchestrate his own, his own ouster. I'm reminded of the parable of the frog and the scorpion who gives the scorpion a ride across the stream and the scorpion still stings him anyway. But Talleyrand is a scorpion on top of like six frogs, and he keeps going back to the same shore and getting on the next frog. That's great. And I mean, in addition to his kind of questionable religiosity, we can look at his womenizing tendencies, right? And now that's, this was common, of course, in the period, especially for the spy masters. But Talleyrand, from what I saw, was actually pretty notorious for using women directly in his plots because they were so much easier to get across the borders. They didn't raise suspicion. So another kind of unique uh, role that he played here. And then also, you know, the irony of Talleyrand that's so inherent in him. You know, we can look to the XYZ affair, right? And you can claim that Talleyrand cared only about France, that that was his mission no matter who ruled it, no matter what it was, it was all about France. But his actions by being kind of this ringleader in the XYZ affair, demanding bribes from American officials, 
is what directly led to the quasi-war that France had to fight in uh, for about three years. So certainly a, a bit of irony there for Talleyrand's personality and his motives. Yeah, I think according to his personal code, he was offering services as a diplomat and felt that people should pony up, should pay for those services handsomely. So for him, it wasn't a bribe. It was just payment for services rendered. Of course, we would think of that as a bribe anyway, but good point. Okay, well, that's what I have to say about Talleyrand. Let's move now to Andy Cox with our next uh, entry in the list. When I was doing research for this, I decided to go further afield than the names I already knew. Uh, And I found some real, as Hollywood would call them, complicated characters. And so I'd like to start with Mir Jafar. Great betrayals are usually preceded by very personal motives or perhaps grand ambitions. But in the case of Mir Muhammad Jafar Khan in 18th century Bengal, India, it included both. Jafar was a highly placed military general under Siraj Udwala, the recently crowned 8th Nawab, a Muslim ruler, but he had been previously demoted and he secretly desired to rule Bengal himself. He got his chance during the mid-century Seven Years' War, when mutual distrust between Siraj and the British East India Company led to war. In summer 1757, Robert Clive, the company governor of Chennai, commanded the company's expeditionary forces in Bengal. He learned about popular discontent against Siraj in his own court and secretly approached Mir Jafar and other Mughal dynasty officers to cut a deal. In exchange for British support raising Jafar to the Bengali throne, Jafar would ally with the British, exclude the French from Bengal, and promise to pay a lot of money. At the Battle of Plassey, Siraj Udwala's combined infantry, cavalry, and artillery forces far outnumbered Clive's 3,000 professionally-led East India Company soldiers and Indian sepoys. Jafar and his fellow conspirators, commanding thousands of cavalry and infantry units, formed up on the wing nearest to Clive, but made no move to actually join the fighting. Despite their numbers, the Mughal forces were in disarray by afternoon and depended on Jafar's assistance, which never came. After a long day of fighting, Clive decisively defeated Siraj, overthrew Mughal rule in Bengal, and installed Jafar as Nawab with direct East India Company support. But Jafar's turn on the throne didn't turn out to be the sweet life he had hoped it would be. He ceded territory to the company and quickly ruined the state finances trying to pay back the British. After a series of bad deals, bad decisions, and more fighting, Jafar died while addicted to opium and suffering from leprosy. Mir Jafar's story is a key part in the larger breakup of Mughal India in the 18th century, when large independent kingdoms formed and fought each other right as European incursions became serious threats. The Battle of Plassey and Jafar's short reign as Nawab of Bengal are considered by many historians as the start of British expansion, control, and eventual domination of India. He's a controversial Indian historical figure, particularly among Bengalis, symbolizing betrayal and treachery in the name of personal ambition. Andy, I love this one because I had, of course, never heard of Jafar. So very educational for me. But I want to clarify, did Jafar actively fight against uh, Abdullah or did he just stand on the sidelines watching his king get slaughtered by these uh, more advanced British soldiers? 
He stood on the sidelines the whole day. Um, there are reports of him going into conference with Siraj in the in the tent with other generals and saying, of course, I'm ready to move. And then as soon as they leave, he would send runners and messengers to Clive, telling him what was going on. Most of the morning was actually an artillery duel and cavalry charges against entrenched positions. The British, being far outnumbered, were actually in a pretty good defensive spot. And it's not until after... Siraj's other forces have started to break and Clive takes advantage of it to chase them. It's not until that moment that Mir Jafar's absence from the field is really felt, but he never moves in to close with the English. He doesn't have to. I feel like in a way that's almost, that's really worse. It's worse than stabbing the king bat in the back directly or fighting against him by just staying in the field, by paying lip service and saying, oh, sure. Yes, yes, sir. I'll go fight them right away. Love your plans. You're doing great. And then to just stand there and watch him lose. That, that to me is a pretty, uh, pretty intense betrayal. Yeah. This story really reminds me of just the poet Rabindranath Tagore from India, he said famously, yes, the British managed to divide and conquer and therefore claim an entire subcontinent for themselves, but it was the Indians who let themselves be divided. And, you know, that Mir Jafar would end his days addicted to opium and suffering from leprosy. I'm sure that this is the kind of biographical note that Indian historians have seized upon as sort of his just desserts for having having betrayed his sovereign in that way. so But of course, he never could have known at the time the outcome of his treachery that Bengal would eventually fall into British hands and then the entire subcontinent. Yeah, you're right in that the British had already learned how to suborn or turn uh, Indian officials or other royals or ambitious generals like Mir Jafar. But really, after Mir Jafar, this becomes a pretty well-established pattern that they use all over the rest of the subcontinent. Mac, I'd like to hear about one of yours. I understand you have a very familiar name that I'm sure some of our listeners have been waiting for. Yeah, this this is the one that hopefully you've all been waiting for and expecting. And it's also the most cliche entry on our list today. But that's Benedict Arnold, perhaps a name synonymous with betrayal in the American lexicon. And most everybody knows they learn about Benedict Arnold in their middle or their high school history courses, the very basic information. And it's well known that Arnold is considered one of the most notorious turncoats in the history of the American Republic. Yet there's something that makes Arnold's betrayal even more bitter. The fact that he was considered a war hero by many in the Continental Army, thanks to his daring and truly ingenious actions at both Ticonderoga and the Battle of Valcourt Island. As a young colonel, Benedict Arnold and a small band of troops rode silently across Lake Champlain in upstate New York and took Fort Ticonderoga by surprise. This victory provided the artillery necessary to later force the British evacuation of Boston. But it also severed an important link between New York and Montreal for the British. A year later, at Valcour Island, which we did discuss briefly on our first episode of the Top 3, Arnold constructed his own fleet of galleys and small gunboats in an attempt to delay the British invasion of New York. While the battle itself was a tactical defeat for Arnold's far-outnumbered fleet, the Battle of Valcour Island was a massive strategic victory. By mid-October, the British Army decided to delay the invasion of New York until 1777, allowing precious time for the Continental Army to reinforce its position at Saratoga, resulting in the American victory there on October 1777. 
But despite these military victories, and despite the high regard with which many in the Continental Army initially held Arnold, he was a deeply troubled man. His father had been a drunkard, a true disgrace to the family, who swindled away the family's significant fortunes, and his wife, Margaret, died in 1775. Shortly thereafter, Arnold met Peggy Shippen, the daughter of wealthy, loyalist-leaning Philadelphians. He quickly fell madly in love with the young girl, who was 19 years his junior. She was 19 at the time. He was 38. And desperately sought ways to get rich quick in order to win the support of her family and to provide for her the quality of life to which she had become so accustomed. Arnold was bitter when he was initially passed over for promotion to Major General due to purely political reasons. And he offered his resignation to George Washington. Washington, rather faithfully, however, refused to accept his resignation. Between the desire to solidify his future with the young and pretty Peggy Shippen and the perceived slights at the hands of those in Congress who had refused to promote him, Arnold began correspondence with General Henry Clinton of the British Army, providing Clinton with troop locations and military plans. After assuming command of the strategically important fort of West Point in 1780, Go Navy Beat Army, Arnold was offered 20,000 pounds, approximately 5 million U.S. dollars today, to surrender the fort to the British. Ultimately, the plot was discovered by chance when Arnold's intermediary with Clinton was captured by Continental Army forces. Arnold was able to flee to the safety of the British lines, whereupon he began service in the British Army. The story of Benedict Arnold's betrayal a man whom George Washington trusted, despite the many rumors of his loyalist activities, was made even more bitter by the circumstances of his betrayal. Between harboring deep anger at the colonial establishment for perceived political slights against his career and his desire to give Peggy Shippen the life she was accustomed to, the energetic young patriot who had captured Fort Ticonderoga and had delayed the British at Valcourt Island had become nothing more than a bitter turncoat. So Mac, we've all heard of Benedict Arnold. We all heard about personal ambitions. I wanted to be a general and I got passed over. I have never heard of the Peggy Shippen angle before. And this is fascinating. Tell me more about how much her relationship weighs in on his decision to turn traitor. Yeah. So there are some neat things about Peggy Shippen, even though she was only 19, which is, which is interesting in and of itself, um, given Arnold's age. But she was good friends with Major John Andre, who was the top British military spy in the colonies. And it is thought that she was the one who initially introduced Arnold to, uh, the top British military spy in the United States. And, There have also been some reports that Arnold sent a letter to some of his friends detailing one of the reasons why he was staying with Peggy Shippen. It wasn't just that her family was extremely rich. She was also apparently quite talented uh, doing other activities, notably those in the bedroom. So Arnold was infatuated with this 19-year-old girl who had somehow accumulated this political know-how and deceit that would lead Arnold down this path towards eventual betrayal. Yeah, the things we do for love. I mean, Peggy Shippen, 19 years old, and she's the most powerful 19-year-old female in American society at this time, the 1770s. She's shaping the events of the war in her way. Uh, Deceitful, as you point out, and uh, 
uh, hard-nosed. You, you can think of all kinds of ways to uh, describe her, but she seriously had uh, a head on her shoulders. She knew what she wanted, and she was going to force Benedict Arnold to basically cater to her will. So that's interesting. I was curious about um, Benedict Arnold's career post-betrayal for the British um, in the sense that what actual impact did he have in shaping the outcome of this war? Yeah, that's a great a great question, Thomas. Um, as we know, the the plot for to turn over West Point uh, did not go through, so the British were never able to uh, capture West Point. And shortly thereafter, General Clinton uh, focused on a, a Southern strategy, uh, and that Southern strategy, in many ways, included raiding, right? What we call in naval history, Guerra Razia. Uh, it's not just focused on ships, it's focused on coastal, on inland raiding. Uh, and that's pretty much what Arnold was responsible for during his service in the British Army. So he was sent on raids uh, to both Virginia and Connecticut uh, to burn, to pillage, etc. And perhaps most notoriously, uh, the impact that Arnold would have had was at the Battle of Groton Heights, uh, just outside of Groton, Connecticut in 1781, where Arnold, who was the commander of the, the British forces attacking the American garrison, uh, was present when the British began to slaughter American soldiers who had just surrendered. Um, so overall, not a huge impact on the direction of the war, but in particular, Arnold's presence where uh, at Groton Heights, where the British began to slaughter those who had surrendered, certainly cemented Arnold um, as a particularly bad guy. And so after the war, did he flee to Canada or to the UK? Or He was in the UK after the yeah. war. Both Arnold and Peggy Shippen went to the UK. Uh, they lived there for a number of years. Uh, and then Arnold passed away and Peggy Shippen went her separate way, dying of cancer not long after. Mm. So they did actually marry. So there's a they did marry, silver lining there. They married. They stayed together. Um, he, he must have really met the one in this Peggy Shippen. Uh-oh. We're going to stop there for today. Tune in for episode two when we continue learning about great modern betrayals and decide upon which ones are truly the worst. From all of us here at the Naval Academy, thanks for tuning in to the top three. <laughs>